when I did Medulla, which is a long time ago, which is crazy, I was still defining one color. And I think for me, this was almost like a primordial motherhood character, opposed to Vespertine, which was very ideal, defining paradise, and very, in a way, without any flesh, because it existed inside the laptop digital. And then, obviously, having a baby and breastfeeding, you are all this flesh and blood and, and muscles, and it becomes very prominent. And you are like almost not communicating in language anymore. You, you are like smiling and reading your baby's face and expressions. And, and it's very playful. There's a lot of like humor. I think that's one thing that people don't talk enough about after women have given birth. The playfulness, which is not about words or logic or theories or ideology. You can leave that behind and it's just, you know, the joy of someone's face being happy to see you. And, and it's a very beautiful place and it's a lot of pure, innocent joy there. And a lot of the songs on Medulla are about this. You are listening to Sonic Symbolism, where Björk explores her emotional landscapes, the textures and the timbers of her albums. With friends, author and philosopher Otni Eir, and me, musical curator Ásmundur Jónsson. This is episode five, Metulla. The words that describe Metulla are Primordial Motherhood The pleasure is all mine to get to be the generous one is the strongest stance black braided hair breastfeeding Humor, passive. If this should be, I say, if this should be you of my heart, send me a little word that I may go unto her and take her hands, saying, pre civilization. Folk. Long, deep, 
archaeology bones. Family. Around campfire. Björk's fifth album, Medulla, followed the birth of her daughter. This was the time when she would arrange things so that she didn't need to leave her daughter too much, not touring or doing big concerts. So the home life would be very fertile, both a peaceful place of self-sufficiency and a place of joyful gatherings. I remember coming to her home on a Thanksgiving evening and feeling how the hospitality was extraordinary. There was something very meaningful in the air. So we continue maybe seeing its album as a person or like an archetype or a being. It's funny that in the beginning it was quite clear and simple, but now when you describe Medulla, for example, the list gets a little longer. Is it because with age you like you're not afraid of definitions anymore? You're like it's almost like a feminist uh, claim to own the definitions or like to master them, or is it also because you are what are you getting more complicated with age or what? What is it? <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's very interesting. I probably just have to agree with both, <laughs> both things. I think um, I think when we are in our twenties, it's more like, oh, now I'm gonna be aggressive, and now I'm happy, and now I'm sad, and it's more one thing at a time. I think as you get older, you are kind of more everything at the same time. But I think a lot of People or, or I can imagine both authors or musicians or people who make films or whatever. Maybe sometimes some of their first things they make, they have to define those different prime colors in their own character. So there's, you know, they do one, the gentle, kind one, and another one, the destructive one, and then another one, the humorous one, and, and the nourishing one, and they do all the different colors and. Yeah, in a way, not only just limited to emotional state also, but just for me musically, the instruments and the timbre of the sounds and the textures. But then at a certain point, it's almost like once you have defined them, you have access to all of them or something. Like they are dormant in you, but in order to make them active, you, you step into them and write songs about them. But once they've been activated, you sort of have access to them your whole life, you know?
Okay, so this, the voice is it's very central. And so, so was this like album? Did you see beforehand a little bit like, or was this more like coming along, along the way a little bit? Hmm. I think a little bit of both. I do remember a moment though where I was playing in the studio and I had several songs and I was just I just couldn't make them work. And then I would just mute one thing, mute something else, mute something else until just the vocals were left. So the first instinct came that I was just bored with instruments. <laughs> Maybe I just overdosed on instrumentation at this time or something. Like after Vespertine with 100 tracks in every song, like where were you going to go? But I tried to, even though a lot of my albums, especially the older I get, they have sometimes heavy concepts and stuff. The beginning of them are always an impulse or a genuine instinct. And I try to actually follow just the teenage thing in me, which is kind of like, oh, I'm so old pink. I love green, you know, just the first instinct is usually something very teenage like that. And then if you just follow it, it's usually right. And then if you follow it for two or three years, you end up actually having something that is more chance that you, you like it. <laughs> but I also remember a moment a little bit later when just joking, going into Manhattan for dinner or something and just joking like, oh my God, maybe it's going to be an a cappella album. And kind of <laughs> laughing, thinking, oh my God, I never thought I would be the sort of person who would make that sort of an album. But but kind of realizing, yeah, I think it's going to, yeah, it, it's probably going to be that. London in the 90s, everything was about beats. Like I was surrounded by people where you could talk about beats for 10 hours straight, about like snare sounds and, and the difference of, you know, drum and bass and jungle or, or like the, all the different niche and genres and, and sounds and all the new beats that were coming out. And if you would come to my house, I would just be listening to beats all day, you know. And for me, I, I wasn't listening to beats all day. For me, it was a symphony. <laughs> but from other people who, who are not used to it, that's kind of what we were doing. We were living in a beat world. It was a very beautiful period of electronic music because it was, in a way, a moment in time where the beat was everything. It was a whole symphony, you know. You just dropped everything else in a song. And it was a very exciting time. And, of course, the statement of homogenic of making my own volcanic beat was part of this. I was smitten by the importance of yeah. the beat. The beat is a sculpture, audio sculpture in space, and it has to be something you never heard before. It cannot just be the old drum set, you know, and, and it doesn't work anymore. And, and this kind of fertility and sense of adventure that was in uh, London in the 90s, in, in beat culture. And then, of course, after that, everybody thought I would do another album with big volcanic beats. 
And then, of course, I did the opposite, which was microbeats. And then I lived in a world for three years of microbeats, <laughs> which was the opposite. And then I think for me, I was just done mm-hmm. with, with beats. beats. Yeah. Oh, okay. I think for me, I was just like, everybody thinks, oh, now she's going to do whatever beat. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was too predictable or too uh, obvious. And also, obviously, my original instrument is the voice. And it, for me, it was time to go back home to mm-hmm. my own voice and to voice music. In, with the same intense fanatical fervor as I did with the beats, but this time use the same passion and put directed to the voice. Also, just a purely practical, I had the babysitter who was at home, she was with my baby, you know, and then certainly she would cry, she would come and interrupt me. So I would work at home, but maybe sometimes only for an hour, and then I would go away for an hour, and then back for an hour. So it was somehow easiest just to do a lot of vocal music and not create this whole other world of other things that I would introduce into it. So I was basically going to another room and closing the door and doing like layers with my own voice. So, which in a way wasn't that different to having a small baby in breastfeeding. You know, it was very intimate and very happy. I tried to learn new software for each album or new technology. So I was getting a lot of like super collider and a lot of new software where I could loop my voice and you can hear a few moments of it on the album. For example, the beginning of Mouth's Cradle. is probably the song which is most about breastfeeding, just quite directly about the teeth and nourishment, how it travels into the mouth and the molars and dancing on the teeth and it's almost like some sort of a playful Tom and Jerry (laughs) breastfeeding song, (laughs) cartoon. (laughs) And you can use those teeth as a ladder up to mouth's cradle. I feel on Metulla, maybe because there is this childbirth, the idea of the bones somehow and the genes and the memory somehow, and you can feel that awareness of uh, where you come from and where we come from. I think I definitely started noticing, you know, maybe having my first daughter, I started noticing black and white photographs with braids and braided hair and how that was connected with folk music. It's always like braided hair and folk music and, and what is my origin and, you know, my mother and her mother and her mother, like back, 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 back. 
and maybe some Celtic thing or I'm not sure what, but there was definitely like feeling that I was part of this chain or, or let's say braid, mm-hmm. which is more feminine than a chain. So that came also into it, I would like to say. But I think maybe my way of trying to make fun of having family and being in a family home and being a homebody is trying to make singing melodies around the fireplace and maybe tapping into all the times humanity (laughs) had done that, you know, like back in the Stone Age or this kind of need to have no instruments and nothing of the infrastructure of civilization. Vökuró is written by the composer Jórun Viðar. She was for years the only female composer as a member of the Icelandic Composer Society. Vökuró was first performed in 1967. The music sounds traditional, but Jórun had a deep root in the Icelandic cultural heritage. So is that maybe the reason that you do your own version of like Vökuró and that you are going into like folk? roots or into roots music? Yes, I mean, I was definitely very interested in Icelandic singing traditions and the choir tradition, which is huge in Iceland, and also the sort of self-sufficiency of the voice and how, with Metula, I was thinking a lot about Icelandic people sitting by the fireplace thousand years ago or 10,000 years ago, somewhere together. I mean, I was imagining this kind of place which was almost like sometimes a cave or sometimes the home. And how can we fight suffering and bad feeling and, you know, when people in the home just start singing together. And it's a very healing, healing thing. And, I mean, we have it a lot in Icelandic culture where we start singing these old Icelandic songs, especially after a few drinks, and people just improvise the different lines and... And it gives you like a sense of well-being, you know. I really am fascinated by this. And I always felt that this kind of the acoustic guitar and the sort of hippie mm-hmm. songs wasn't really Icelandic. It was like American, like mm-hmm. hamburgers and Coca-Cola. It wasn't really based on the Icelandic folk songs or the Icelandic chord progressions or the typical tvisöngur or... There are different court progressions in a lot of the Icelandic traditional songs, which is based more on fifths, mm. and it doesn't have the sort of three-chord rock thing. It's the opposite of that. song kind of maybe provided the most sincerest moment on the album with when it comes to motherhood and singing lullabies and wanting to protect your child for the big bad world out there. I just wanted to sing it, you know. 
for me, there are like part of these Icelandic choir songs of the choir music archives that are like one of the most beautiful music that exists. I want to ask you about the opening track of Medulla, The Pleasure is All Mine, where you blend together in with throat singing, alt metal vocal, beatbox sounds together with an Icelandic choir and your voice. For me, this is a far-fetched mix, but are you willing to take us behind the scene and tell us a bit about how you did work out this radical mixture of voices and the background of the song? Yeah, the way I worked Pleasure is all mine. I wrote all of it in La Gomera in the Canary Islands. And yeah, I kind of wrote it first all with my voice and all the harmonies and most of the things. And then afterwards, it wasn't until towards the end of the album where I decided to invite guests. I think I was trying to perform some delicate balance that was mm-hmm. universal, but also it's a contradiction because I was also trying not to be universal. I was also trying to escape traditional genres and analysis and definitions by a boring musicologist. So I wanted also to try to bring a surprising point of view on the history of world music and a cappella singing, you know, and bring it somehow into modern times. is maybe the first feminist lyric I write, which is about the generosity and how women, like their guitar solo or ego, if you want, is how much they give. So it's who gives most. Of unconditional love, yeah. Yeah, who's the biggest giver? And then again, I'm very, very sorry Mm. that my sense of humor is so bad, but it was also some strange joke from being in some huge family gathering in the countryside. And it's kind of like not only who brought most cakes and who brought most food, but, you know, if, if a baby falls and starts crying, like, what mother does the baby run to? <laughs> and the humiliation of it runs to not its own mother. <laughs> it's a disaster. <laughs> so I think it was like some, this lyric is some strange joke that I had actually, I think with probably with my friend Yoka, that uh, women have just as much ego as guys, but it's it's just in different areas, you know? I also mean it in a serious way. I'm looking at myself like, of course I'm guilty of it too, to wanting to have most cakes and <laughs> Yeah, or most. have okay. a lot of breast milk, for example. Yeah. yeah, and have the biggest parties, and with yeah. the most food, and most champagne, and mm-hmm. <laughs> the biggest host. I think what is happening here gradually is I'm slowly doing more and more myself, and later and later in each project, 
I ask people to step in. Okay. So maybe there are more and more names, <laughs> so it's a little <laughs> bit misleading. But uh, maybe I work myself alone on a project for two or three years, and sometimes the last month I will get the guests in. So I'm looking at the process of album making as my own uh, music school, like the music school I didn't go to. So, yeah, like I try every album to learn something new that I didn't know before, or either surround myself uh, by people who can teach me to do it or learn myself. <laughs> yeah, and this is slowly happening through the process of the albums. Where is the line with you? 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 There are several songs that are splattered on all my albums, which are written to my siblings, younger siblings, and uh, I call them finger songs, where uh, you put your finger in the air and you, you think you know what you're talking about when you're telling your younger siblings to do their homework and stuff. <laughs> it's not a very attractive <laughs> characteristic, but I think <laughs> for me, that's actually quite humorous, this song, because I'm trying to make fun of... Of the older sister, yeah. The older sister. A little bit the mother, the type of mother that, uh, yeah, it's like talking to her teenagers or something. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know about you, but my group of friends at that time when we were making that beat, we were crying with laughter. They were just hysterical. <laughs> and I'm very happy when I play, I had to play this beat the other day because we were preparing it for a concert to an engineer I work with who was like, 20-something now, and, and he's just started laughing as well. So I, I think it maybe is a music joke because it's sort of like metal, but by the bonfire with the family. Mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of like, wow! It's, it's kind of like uh, doing headbanging, but you are in your living room, you know. I call it music nerd joke because it's about writing something that is meant for arena of 50,000 people usually is an emotion that's mm -hmm. like that, mm -hmm. but you're putting it in a domestic context, so it becomes kind of like, you know, like the Iliad, but like in a cardboard book for kids, yeah, or, yeah, or yeah. It's, it's like the wrong container or something. Okay. So do a headbanging song, which usually is, is for like stadium rock, but do it by the fireplace. Yeah, so the, the spectrum there, just in the using of the voice, there is a quite a rainbow of different poles in medulla. From the voice of the mother that uses the voice to soothe and to communicate, just the intonation of the voice without the words to communicate with children. 
And then all the way to the other spectrum where it's like the grotesque carnival using of the voice somehow from the marrow of the bones and the home and into the street somehow because the, the what's called the mm-hmm. beatbox. Mm-hmm. I think there's some strange humor also with my friends who do electronic music, like music nerds maybe, because beatboxing was very hip and cool in the 80s or something. So 20 years later, when I do Medulla, it's kind of absolutely unfashionable <laughs> or something. So it's it's kind of like a very strange, like we would just cry with laughter because it was so wrong. I feel somehow there is this spirit of joyfulness, like all kinds of music together in a very beautiful way, but also, yeah, not parodic, but... Yeah, fun. Maybe just fun. You're not making fun of anyone, but you're you're not making fun of those uh, guys. No, not at all. I, I actually got the best beatboxer in the world, Russell, to work with me on the album. And he's actually so good that he is like timeless. So he's like one of the example of taking something that maybe came out of fashion or, or not even fashion, but like necessity in the environment that the 80s were. And he kind of elevated above it, you know, because he was just so good at what he did. Maybe when I say humor or, or parody or something like this, or maybe it's just uh, also opposed to Vespertine, where, where the album was quite serious and homogenic as well, you know where I'm taking myself very seriously and it's about maybe my own individuation or something like that. And the two parts of me, the more masculine and the more feminine. But then it's like, okay, that that has been established or something. So now it's, why take yourself so seriously always, you know? And also to use throat singing of Tanya Takwak, the Inuit singer, and then also like a choir. And then there was this Japanese beatboxer I found online. And and then I got all my friends to do just all kind of noises. And we would actually, I remember evenings where we would be like drunk in this small bar we used to go to called Circus. And I would turn the music off and everybody had to do like a rave song together just with your voice. Triumph of a Heart came out of this kind of idea. <laughs> then I got Spike Jones to help me document. I asked him to do the video of Triumph of a Heart. To imagine a club where people are all singing together, you know, and one is doing beats and the next one is doing chords and then some doing melodies, you know, which people in a way don't really do anymore. But I wanted to kind of create this utopia in this video where this is our folk music. You know, if you would in thousand years have some archaeologist or ethnicist person travel here and they would go into circus, we would be singing like that every day. (laughs) We didn't need a sound system or we didn't need anything because we were just making each other happy by singing like that for each other. Like, oh, we can be in a club and we don't need beats. Who needs beats? You know, like, oh, we can have a party and 
party till four in the morning and just sing a cappella to each other and just find that really funny. I don't know why. Maybe part of it is that I actually think it's really uncool. <laughs> like a cappella ensembles. It was almost the worst music I, I can imagine. <laughs> really? And, and then kind of take embracing that, but uh, loving it, you know, and also the part of me that is it. And, you know, it can be pretentious and all kind of things, but also the seriousness, of course, uh, of it. Mm. But then, of course, I think Tanya and Rassel are phenomenal artists in their own right, and they're really, really good at what they're doing. So I don't mean it in any disrespect to the people I ask to join, but I think it's also like my strange way of putting the middle finger up to genres. Mm. Like I just wanted to erase a little bit the genres that we're supposed to, the boxes we're supposed to be in. And then, of course, there is Oceania, which I wrote for the Olympics. And I wanted it to be from the point of view of the ocean that goes around all the nations, because I didn't want it to be like <laughs> some strange uh, sport lyrics. And then I asked Sean to do the lyrics from this point of view. And he, of course, did a magnificent job. But it was a coincidence that I got asked in the middle of this album to do this, but it was kind of perfect because it's sort of singing for all the world's nations from the point of view of the ocean. One breath away from Mother Ocean. We all went to Athens and I performed it there. So it actually, looking at it now, strangely fits the theme. Yeah. <laughs> and actually Oceania, I first wrote it thinking it was going to have two pianists on a two grand pianos. And I wrote insanely impossible uh, things to play on the piano. So that it was like a piano sport song. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> So they were competing, mm. like the Olympics of grand piano playing. And then in the end for the album, when it became a vocal album, I got a female choir in London. And they became like the uh, sirens in Athens. They sing like... <laughs> things like this which is really hard to play on piano, but easy to sing. I see the islands you count centuries I And then there is E. Cummings mm -hmm. in the song Sonnets. Where did that come from? Sort of came from nowhere. I remember I was in uh, Cologne or something. 
and I was in a hotel room and I just sort of opened this book I had with me and I literally just sang the whole song in a dictaphone in one go. It may not always be so and I say and if your lips which I have loved should touch another's I remember when I wrote it it was like wow this is the furthest emotional point away from me at this moment as mine in time not far away and also the lyric is obviously about that you know when you're really really in love with someone and you imagine how would it be when we split up and it's like a worst case scenario thing great rising words as uttering over match stand helplessly before the spirit at bay if this should be And then if you imagine it, 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 sometimes it happens. Ten years later, it happens. So it's kind of interesting that when I'm singing it, I'm singing it as someone it will never happen to. Mm. But I love things like that. I actually heard like a jazz song I sang when I was in my 20s. And I remember singing that song. It's like the saddest song of all times. Curiosity, like what song is that? <laughs> you don't know what love is? Mm. It's like a standard. And I remember singing it like, wow, like this is like being on the moon for me. Or I really feel like I'm singing about Martians or aliens. This is really exciting because it was so... I'd never experienced this, you know? You don't know what love is until you've learned the meaning of the blues. Until you've loved a love you've had to lose. You don't know what love is. And then hearing that song on the radio in some taxi or something just last year, I was like, wow, now I, I've experienced feeling like this, but I have no interest in singing it. Wow. But I was actually watching a documentary yesterday with K-pop Korean uh, girls, and they're singing like all these love songs. And they are in this kind of really strict music school where they cannot really have relationships and then they're singing these like extreme passionate love songs it's such an interesting point of view it, it is kind of like me in Vespertine like writing about something that hasn't happened to me yet you know and it's almost like you're almost more capable of telling the story when it hasn't happened to you, if that makes any sense. 
Well, that's an interesting uh, theory or like, you know, idea. Sometimes. So you are like, you have some idea of it, you have some instinct or, yeah. Because you're really giving a life to the songs, to the text. So it's it, it seems like you really know what it's all about. There is some, yes, just some interesting library inside all of us, you know. Sometimes we don't have to, you know, if you are a uh, performer, like, Good actresses don't have to be attracted. No. <laughs> All these things to be able to act on. So, yeah, there is some emotional uh, palette with every single emotion and situation that has existed. And then sometimes it's amazing that you have lived it because then you give it some weight and gravity, and that's amazing. But sometimes it's the opposite, you know. It's more a concept or an idea that you're singing about. Yeah, it's also like what belongs to this world. Like in this album in Medulla, you are somehow mapping out this is, well, it's simplistic to say it's a motherhood, but if, if it's like a, your family life somehow, there is the older sister, there is the one that's nursing the child. So there is like a lot of places. And one, of course, this possible breakup is there somewhere within this world? I mean, the possibility is always there that, the, that this family world can be fucked up. Somebody will fuck it up. <laughs> so it's consciously or unconsciously, there is, it's all there a little bit, this home. It's almost like, yeah, ma- mapping of this family life. Mm-hmm. The entrance and the exit also. Mm-hmm. The difference between homogenic and vespertine is like the character of the, the emotional character is so different. There is not as much desire for transformation and explosion in medulla. So I'm wondering where are the poles? You know, could you define them a little bit, like emotionally? Um, you said earlier, like there is the unconditional love, the home the nurturing and then the humor and the, the gathering and where the body explodes just in all all its sounds somehow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is definitely, you're happy where you are. You're happy with what you got. You know, it's not trying to find something far away that's a fantasy and hoping maybe one day that will be your life. It's not that at all, it's the opposite. It's being happy with what you you have. Sonic Symbolism is a co-production of MailChimp Presents, Talkhouse and Björk, and was made by Björk, Öpni Eir, Ásmundur Jónsson, Anna Geða, Ian Wheeler, Julie Douglas and Christian Kunz. It was produced by Christian Kunz 
and edited by Christian Kunz and Anna Gida. Special thanks to Derek Burkett, Catherine Verna Bentley, Sack McNeese, Ævar Kjartansson, Bergur Þórisson og Dúna Steinun Þorgeirsdóttir. Music appears courtesy of One Little Independent Records. 